But one thing Sister Joe Strand can always do is make me cry. <laughs> Not that it's hard. <laughs> I first knew of her when, she, when they came in 98 for a general conference. And I think Brother Joe Strand was sick and uh, Sister Joe did most of the ministering and she let down her hair literally and, and was all over the place. And I was like, wow, she's mad. I love it. <laughs> it was like, if I could be just a little bit like that, I would like that. And who knew that 22 years later would be in your home and the Lord has orchestrated this friendship, this connection that we have. And I'm just grateful when I look over what he's done in my life and the people he has placed at the appointed time. You know, sometimes you meet one person just for a moment, but he has answered our prayer really that every once in a while our paths cross. And I just thank him for that. You may be seated this evening. I just want to share a scripture before I start tonight, before, before, before. It's a scripture that I've come to love and it's in Deuteronomy 29 and 29. It says, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. And I want to thank God that he reveals the things that we need to know how to live for him, how to be saved. It's all in the word of God. We don't have to go looking anywhere else. What he wants us to know, I know it comes through this pulpit because it comes from his word because I know these people have a heart after God and they're not going to lie to you and they're not going to tell you things to puff themselves up, but they're going to preach the word. They're going to preach the things that God wants you to know. And so with that in mind this evening, if we could turn... If I could get my scriptures to 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. I believe the scriptures will be on the wall. And I'll read from 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12 as well. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resisteth whom, sorry, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 12 says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. Tonight, I want to share with you that there is a battle plan. We either fight or we fl flight, flee away. The human body has a built-in automatic battle plan that it reverts to when threatened or faced with danger. It is a physiological response known as the acute stress response or fight or flight. When we feel threatened, whether it's an actual or perceived threat, the sympathetic, sympathetic nervous system goes into high gear, causing the body to speed up, tense up and become very alert. 
It then sends out signals to release stress hormones into the bloodstream, causing physical responses which include an increase of the heart rate and in the blood pressure. And it prepares the body to either stand and fight the threat or to flee from it to safety. Interestingly, our spiritual man is also equipped with a fight or flight response. Spiritually, we're under constant attack. Danger and threats are at every turn. We should constantly be in high alert, ready for anything, just like soldiers on a battlefield. We need to know the correct strategy to use, whether to fight or to flee the attack we're about to face. We can only know the correct response when we know the battle plan. We need to know the word of God and be familiar with the strategies that God has given us to deal with spiritual threats. We also need to place ourselves in a position of submission to the spirit of God. We have to know which threats to fight and which threats to flee. The correct response ensures the victory is promised. The victory is ours and the battle is the Lord. It's his battle plan used in the correct situation is the only one that will work. The city of Jericho was a fortified city with high walls and it was tightly shut up because of the people's fear of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord showed Joshua the walled city and said, See, I have given you Jericho, the king, the mighty men of valor, into your hand. But when Joshua looked towards Jericho, he saw a fortified city with high walls, impenetrable and intimidating. There was no way over them, no way under them, no way through them. Even the largest, strongest, most experienced army of that time could not have been able to penetrate the walls of that city. Yet God had told them the city was theirs. He wasn't, gonna, he wasn't going to give it to them. He had already given it to them. And not only the city of Jericho, but all the cities and the towns in Canaan belonged to them if they would follow his battle plan. Joshua had witnessed the miraculous works of God. He knew the walls of Jericho would not stand in the way of what the Lord had promised to do. The battle plan for Jericho was unconventional. It was not like any other strategy for battle in the history of warfare up to that point or ever since. The instructions were simple. All the men of war were to march around the city once every day for six days in complete silence. The only sound was, that was to be made came from the priests continually blowing the trumpets as they followed behind. On the seventh day, they were to march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, the people were to shout with a great shout. And the walls of Jericho would fall down, create a ramp of rubble that the armies of Israel would use to go up into the city and overthrow it. The Lord took care of the walls and created an access point into the city. In essence, he gave them the city. But Joshua and his men still had to engage in battle. The Lord provided a battle plan that assured them of victory and Joshua and his army had to carry it out exactly. Any variation would not have had the same results. See, the same way the Lord had given them the city, he's given us the victory. He has given us the victory over sin, over our flesh and the enemy of our souls 
But we have to follow his strategy, his battle plan, exactly how he has laid it out for us. We have to be prepared, armed and ready to engage the threat, whether it requires us to stand and fight, to resist and stand our ground, or whether it requires us to take flight, to flee, to run in the opposite direction of harm's way. The Bible is the Lord's battle plan for us with examples and instructions on how to wage war on the enemy, how to wage war over sin, how to wage war on our flesh. The captain of the host has given us his strategy and we have to understand the kind of threat, sorry, the kind of threat we face and how we need to respond to it. Do we fight or do we get out of there? Applying the correct strategy to each threat is critical to our spiritual survival. First, Peter admonishes us to be sober, that is to be well balanced and disciplined, to be alert and cautious at all times, to be established and firm in our faith, rooted and immovable against the devil's attack, knowing that our brothers and sisters all over the world are also fighting the same battles. We do not fight alone. Our struggles are not unique to us. And we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. We may be in 2019, but the devil's schemes are the same as they were in the beginning. The devil's methods and wiles always include doubt. He plants seeds of doubt in our mind that question the truth of God, his word, his love, and his motives towards us. The devil's first words to Eve in the garden were, Yea, hath God said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? The question was asked in order to get Eve thinking about what she didn't have instead of what God had freely given to them. And once that seed was planted, the devil watered it by appealing to her pride. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And pride is an attitude that provokes self-righteousness. This attitude not only comes with a feeling of superiority, who do they think they are, but with rebellion and stubbornness. Pride doesn't take correction. Instead, it justifies its actions. And at this point, Eve felt like God was holding back from them, not giving them sufficient knowledge. So doubt feeds into pride, we know better, and pride into lust, what we want is more important. Lust exalts the desire of our flesh above God's desire for us. It is the craving, hunger, thirst and appetite or great desire for something you know you shouldn't have. With doubts in her mind and her pride engaged, Eve turns her attention to what she's not meant to have. I imagine that she did the same thing as most of us do when we go to the grocery store to purchase fruit. She gets closer to it and examines it. It looks nice. It looks like a nice piece of fruit. Lots of colour usually means it's ripe. Then she reaches out to handle it. Perhaps she tapped it to see if it was hollow or nice and solid. Perhaps she squeezed it a little to see how firm it was. And then maybe she smelt it and it smelt good. And maybe having passed all the fruit test, the fruit testing process, she comes to the logical conclusion that it would be good for food. And Satan knew he had her as soon as she started touching that fruit. Even though she hadn't eaten it yet, 
The fact that she was looking, touching and smelling meant she was less likely to obey the commandments of God and walk away. And the same principle, the principle is the same for anything that we're not meant to have. The longer you look at it, the more likely you are to go there. Lot found himself in, the, in, dwelling, in dwelling in the cities of the plain in Jordan with his tent pitched towards Sodom. The Bible tells us that Sodom was a place of exceeding wickedness and sin. And the next time we read about Lot, he's dwelling in Sodom. We do not know how much time passed before it was the logical conclusion to move to Sodom. They looked at it every morning when they came out of their tent. They possibly sat out in the evening after a hard day's work with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee looking out into Sodom. They had to go down from their vantage point. It looked like a beautiful city. Sure, it had its problems, but corruption and sin were to be found in every city. Life would be a lot simpler if they just moved down there. Coming down there and back up for supplies was taxing. And unfortunately, the influence of living in Sodom had grievous effects on Lot's family. The angels of the Lord were sent to get Lot out and his family out of Sodom before the Lord was to destroy it. Lot told his sons-in-law they had to leave because the Lord was going to destroy Sodom, but they just laughed at him. And Lot didn't treat the situation with as much haste as it was required because the angels ended up dragging him and his wife and two unmarried daughters out with instructions not to look back. And unfortunately, Lot's wife looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. King David should have been in battle with the rest of his armies. Instead, he decided to stay at home. And one evening, he was on the rooftop of his house when he saw a woman bathing. He did not turn from the scene. He did not avert his eyes. Instead, he continued to watch her. He continued to look and he noticed that she was beautiful to look upon. And when he had finished gazing upon her, he made an inquiry about her. Perhaps if she was unmarried, he could add her to his collection of wives. As, um, and if she was, he'd forget her. Unfortunately, he could not forget her. And he found out that she was married to Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men of valor. And he sent for her anyway, perhaps reasoning with himself that there would be no harm in her company and conversation and surely it would be beneficial to be more acquainted with the families of his most loyal men. That couldn't be a bad thing, could it? But one thing led to another, and we find Bathsheba pregnant and Uriah killed to cover David's sin. James 1, 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Our enemy knows us well. He's been watching human behavior for quite some time now and is somewhat of an expert in carnal behavior. He knows our weaknesses and the things we struggle with and like anyone who plays dirty, he will aim at our weak spots. Our mind is the battlefield. It is where we engage in war, where we fight or where we make that decision to flee. Our enemy cannot read our minds and does not know what we're thinking. But by reading your facial expressions and body language, he can tell whether a seed he has sown has been entertained and allowed to take root. 
He knows when we're struggling and for some of us, so does everybody around us. If we verbalise the struggle to the wrong person or people, he knows he has us. The wrong person will feed the doubt, the pride and the lust, justifying and making excuses for us. And to be fair, there are some people that go looking for those people that will just confirm, yes, this is the right thing to do. What you're feeling, you just have to, you have to, have to act on that. Where, did, where was I? But if we talk to those who are spiritual, those that will correct us and steer us towards the word of God, he knows his chances are slim. When we obey the word of God, its precepts, and follow its principles, he knows he's lost that battle for now. We need to know... We need to know where our thoughts come from. Not every thought you think is yours. In order to discern our thoughts, we need to know the word of God. Is it a God thought? Does it align with what God says about me, about others, about him? Does the thought trigger emotions in me that have a positive or negative effect? The Bible describes Satan as the father of lies. Although the initial thought may sound like truth, we need to challenge negative thoughts without feeding them. He is a liar. There is no truth in him and half a truth is a lie. When we stand in our faith and begin to declare the word of God in direct contradiction to negative thoughts, they lose their strength and disappear. We need to fight resist and stand against vain imaginations and cast them down with truth. In the past, I have had dreams that were so vivid that when I woke up, I would be feeling the same emotions that were stirred up in the dream. The feelings were never positive and couldn't be brushed away with fuel. It was only a dream. I would wake up feeling offended and hurt and upset, and it was always at my husband for something that he did in my dream. <laughs> you can feel sorry for him. This is a true story. <laughs> and this happened more than once. And the dreams were never lifelike. They always had me feeling confused, but it hit me right in the, in the hurt part. You know, it, it didn't make sense, but I was still hurt. Though the feelings were very, very real. Until... Finally, one day I'm like, what is going on? I realised I was under attack and I was being lied to. Being an emotional person, the devil was using my dreams to get to my emotions because he knew he could control me by them. So once I realised this, I was prepared for the next time it would happen. And it did happen. And when I began to dream and the events began to unfold, I stopped mid-dream and said, uh, that's not true. My husband would never do anything like that. This is a dream. And like a puff of smoke, the dream disappeared and my emotions remained unaffected. I actually woke up feeling victorious. I had quenched a dart. I had foiled his walls in this instant. I had won a battle. I had been victorious. It takes a lot of strength to resist, to stand firm and not to react to something or someone that is bothering us. 
We have to remember that we're not fighting against people, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And although we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Often when someone stirs or teases you, they're looking for a reaction. Siblings are really good at this. Especially older siblings tend to tease younger siblings, although I know some younger siblings who have got it down pat. If the stirred sibling, sibling resists the urge to react and ignores the efforts of the one doing all the teasing, they'll stop and go away. It's not any fun anymore. In the same way, we have to resist or fight reaction to some people and situations that we come across. When we humble ourselves before God, we stand in faith and in obedience to God and we resist the devil. We resist the urge to react negatively to the situation and the devil will flee. Sometimes we have to ignore thoughts that are negative and seem to flood our mind. We know the thoughts are not from God, but we entertain them because they strike a chord with our emotions and we perceive them to be true. However, we need to fight these thoughts challenge the thoughts. What is this? Where is it coming from? Ask yourself, is it true? Is it honest, just, pure, lovely, and of a good report? Will dwelling on this thought be beneficial to me? Will it bring glory to God? Will it cause me to react in righteousness or unrighteousness? We will get offended, but we can control how far offense gets into our spirit. We can stop it from borrowing down, becoming a root of bitterness just by fighting, by standing firm and questioning the motive of the person who committed the offence. Is so-and-so really the kind of person that would go out of their way to say something to intentionally hurt me? If the answer is yes, why is this person in your life? But seriously... In this instant, fight the urge to retaliate. Turn the other cheek and pray for them as instructed in Matthew 5, 39, 44 and Luke 6, 29 and 28. We're not commanded to repay anyone evil for evil. This privilege belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. However, if the answer is no, they wouldn't intentionally go out of their way to hurt me. It will often smother out the feelings of offence. When you realise that that person actually loves you and they might be having a bad day or they just said something silly because we all do that, it just kills it right there. These are the kind of battles that require us to respond with fight. There are other instances when the battle plan orders us to flee. There are things that God has instructed us not to stand against and fight but to retreat, to flee from, to run away, to get out of there. In order as they appear in the scriptures, we are to flee from fornication, idolatry, the love of money and youthful lusts. 1 Corinthians 6 and 18 says, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. The battle plan for fornication is get out of there. Get away from that. 
Fornication is sexual activity between two unmarried people. Sexual activity is defined as any bodily contact meant to give or derive sexual gratification. The practice of fornication is widely accepted in our society and encouraged as a healthy and normal practice. However, the Bible declares it plainly to be sin. Neuroscience proves that sex is a holistic activity. This means it's not just physical, but engages humans emotionally, spiritually, releasing bonding and attaching hormones, creating imprints and pathways in our brains that are designed to reinforce a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Sexual activity cannot be separated from our emotions or the rest of who we are. When one commits fornication, they commit sin against their own body, which includes their spirit and their soul. The hookup culture prevalent in our society is detrimental to one's physical, spiritual and mental health because one is continually creating and breaking those bonding attachments and they mess with the original design. Those participating in this kind of lifestyle are prone not only to sexually transmitted diseases, but the increased likelihood of suffering from depression and attempt of suicide. We can endorse fornication without realising it. When we watch movies, when we listen to music, or read books that glorify these kinds of relationships. This is not fleeing fornication, but allowing it access to our hearts and our minds, and we become desensitised to it. And I, I quote something I saw recently, your diet is not only what you eat, it's what you watch, what you listen to, what you read, the people you hang around. Be mindful of the things you put into your body emotionally, spiritually and physically. What you entertain becomes a part of your thought process. So it's a person, what a person thinks in his heart, that's what he is. Pride will say, that's ridiculous. The Bible says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Set up some boundaries to protect your heart and mind. Be diligent. Be intentional about it. It won't happen by accident. Matthew 15 and 19 tells us, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adul uh, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness and blasphemy. Flee any situation where fornication is taking place or could take place. It's not just a movie. It's not just a book. And it's not just a song. Fornication is the kind of threat that you're not to stand against. The battle plan for this threat calls for you to run away. I've been around church for more than 40 years. I've heard people say things like, don't you trust me? When asked not to be alone with someone of the opposite gender. It's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of not giving occasion to the flesh or place to the devil. Our hormonal response to proximity to touch and to sex is so powerful that it can overcome our better judgment. And that's a quote from Dr. Frieda Bush in her presentation at the Minnesota Association of Christian Counselors on her research for the book Hooked, the neuroscience of how casual sex is impacting our youth and culture. It's been proven, folks. Get out of there. I could tell you stories of people that did not take the advice or follow the guidelines by elders. 
They rejected the idea of a chaperone or putting into place any guidelines leaders had given them to protect them. Instead, they preferred to do it their own way. Spending too much time, spending too much time alone with someone of the opposite gender and what seemed to be like a safe platonic friendship suddenly becomes something more and goes too far. Part of the general battle plan for every Christian life is to abstain from all appearance of evil. Be sober and and vigilant about what you watch, about what you read, about what you listen to, about who you spend time with and where you go. Flee fornication, run away. In 1 Corinthians 10 and 14, it tells us, Wherefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The Easterns Bible Dictionary describes idolatry as image worship or divine honour paid to any created object. It is commonplace to view idolatry as something that took place in the past and there are still religions in the world that practice image worship. Perhaps we think that fleeing idolatry is only relevant to those who have been converted from these religions as the Christians were in Corinth. However, idolatry still runs rampant in the world today and comes in many forms. The MacArthur New Testament commentary states, Idolatry is any passion, idea, philosophy, habit or hobby that has become the source of primary concern or loyalty specifically equal to or above a trust and loyalty to Christ. Anything that sits in the same place or is exalted against the true knowledge of God is idolatry. The greatest form of idolatry in the world today is the worship of I. The idolatry of the last days is aptly described in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. In the last days, perilous times shall come for or because men shall be lovers of themselves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent or without self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. All these characteristics stem from from the self-centeredness and the love of I. Never has there been a time in history where humanity has been more selfish, narcissistic and self-focused. You only need a social media account to see this scripture fulfilled. You may not realise it, but selfies, even with a scripture attached, don't bring glory to God. A picture is worth a thousand words and most of the time the scripture and the picture are not telling the same story. The spirit of I comes from Satan himself. It was an I attitude that expelled him from heaven and it's an I attitude that will keep us from heaven. Because of idolatry, it's very subtle. It can be hard to run from. You have to recognise what it looks like to flee from it. It is entirely entirely possible to to profess a reverence for God and his word and still participate in idolatry. 
2 Kings 17 and 33 tells us that Israel feared the Lord and served their own gods. The children of Israel simply incorporated the worship of God with that of their idols. And we do this when we allow our carnal nature to lead us. We still pray, we still read the word, we still go to church and profess a reverence of God. But we have allowed the I to rise up and take charge. What I want, what I think, what I feel becomes more important than what the word of God says. Anything and everything that exalts itself against the true knowledge of God is idolatry. Anything that is placed above God is idolatry. Disobedience and rebellion are idolatry. And often we think of disobedience and rebellion as something obvious. However, it can be, you can be passively disobedient and you can be passively rebellious. And this is a subtle attitude that comes through in our manner. It can look like everything is okay on the outside, but little things filter through that aren't quite right. Thinking you know better than your pastor or those in spiritual authority over you is idolatry. 1 Samuel 15, 23 tells us that stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. That is, that is because when we are stubborn, when we dig our heels in and our opinion becomes more important than the instruction we have been given from the man or the word of God. Covetousness or the love of money is idolatry. Timothy was warned of Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 10 and 11 to flee the love of money as it is the root of all evil. We all like to have money, but to place it as a priority in life will cause one to err from the faith. We need money to live. We need, we need to work to earn money to live. But if we desire for bigger and better, and that's our main drive, perhaps things are a little unbalanced. When we, we get excited about a pay rise and a new job with more money, and often we already know where the extra is going. But how often do we associate a better paying job or a significant pay rise with the opportunity to do something for the kingdom? To flee idolatry is to be continually surrendered to Jesus Christ. We never stop running from idolatry as it's part of the human carnal condition. As long as we are in the world, we will need to flee idolatry. Every day we must put Jesus in his rightful place in our life. Every day we must crown him king. When the Lord is our shepherd, our desires change. We find ourselves not wanting anything else but what he wants for us. Our thinking changes and we find ourselves thinking in alignment with the word of God. We desire to obey and no sacrifice is too hard. We just want to please him. And as a loyal subject before their king, we are at his service. The eye diminishes as we look at the needs of others before our own. When we flee idolatry, we run away from things that we know our carnal nature struggles with. We keep away from the things that give the eye occasion to rise up and dethrone Jesus from his rightful place in our life as Lord and King. 2 Timothy 2.22 tells us to flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 
Paul instructs Timothy to run in the opposite direction, to get away from, to flee from youthful lust. Lust, as we defined earlier, is a desire or hunger for something you know you shouldn't have. Youthful lust suggests that there are things that we haven't quite matured out of. They are areas of weakness we have carried from our youth into our adult lives and we all have them. The key is to recognise our area of weakness. We need to be honest and ask God to help us to apply self-control in these areas that we may mature. We may find that being accountable to someone also helps. And of course, we need to set personal boundaries in our life to help keep us on the straight and narrow. Paul instructs Timothy to surround himself with believers that are following after righteousness, faith, charity, peace out of a pure heart. We are all influenced by those we hang around. Choose your crowd wisely. The people you are with will either help you run away from youthful lusts or make it difficult for you to get away from them. The battle plan is simple. We either fight, we stand firm, or we flee away, we run away. The key is to recognise the wiles that are coming our way and apply the appropriate battle plan to that threat. We encouraged, we are encouraged 12 times in the New Testament to be sober. That is, be clear-headed and sensible. The Amplified Bible further explains it as being well-balanced and self-disciplined. We need to be vigilant, we need to watch and be alert at all times to perceive the threats that surround us. They're not physical threats, but spiritual threats. Our adversary watches us from the sidelines. He seeks to steal, kill and destroy. He prowls about like a roaring lion watching to see who can he attack in a weak moment. He stands on the sidelines to see who he can attack with his arsenal of fiery darts, the most effective being offence. The threats are real, but we have a battle plan. Fight or flee. There are some battles the Lord will fight for us, but we still have to show up in full battle dress. When Jehoshaphat went to God in a panic because the children of Moab and Ammon were coming to attack Judah, the Lord told Jehoshaphat that this wasn't his fight. The battle belonged to the Lord. Jehoshaphat didn't go and put his slippers on and read the paper. No, he was still required to show up in full battle array and stand in position to witness the salvation of the Lord. Why don't we stand this evening? The Lord is on our side. He wants us to win every battle that we have to fight. He has promised us the victory. The victory is ours. This is why he, is, he has exposed the enemy to us. His word tells us what our enemy is like. It's not a secret. God has not, not um, kept that from us, but he has revealed the heart of our enemy. He tells us he's out to kill and destroy us. He tells us how he wants to kill and destroy us. We are aware. The Lord has shown us these things. We're not left wondering who or what we're fighting and how we should fight each threat as it comes our way. He has given us the battle plan. He has placed strategy in our hands. We are not ignorant of the 
methods, of the devil's methods to bring us down. We just have to get smarter and recognize what's happening. Let us not be easily swayed, knocked off our feet. And if we are knocked down, get up and keep going. Don't let the devil kick you while you're down. Get up, get smarter and know the battle plan. See, the Lord has given the victory. He has given us the battle plan and he has not left us to work it out on our own. We must fight the good fight of faith, holding on to eternal life, which we have been called to and we have professed. Ephesians 6, 13 and 18 tells us to put on the armour of God. For his precepts are like a splendor of a splendid armour of heavily of a heavily armed soldier, so you that you may be able to successfully stand against all the schemes and the strategy and the deceits of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not contending with physical opponents, but against the rulers and against powers, against the world forces of this present darkness, against spiritual forces and wickedness in heavenly supernatural places. Therefore, put on the complete armor of God so that you are able to successfully resist and stand your ground in the evil day of danger and having done everything that the crisis demands whether you have to fight or whether you have to flee you need to stand firm in your place fully prepared immovable and victorious if we have to fight we fight if we have to run we run put distance between you and fornication idolatry covetousness and youthful lust Run away from the things that gratify your flesh and run towards righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience and meekness. The victory is ours if we follow the correct battle plan for what we, for the threat. And just like Joshua, when we are obedient and we follow the right battle plan, we can shout, for the Lord has given us the victory. Hallelujah.